I want to encourage you guys to remember Kieran in prayer, to be in the lives consistently of 740-something youth. That's huge. That's huge. I saw one of um, the guys in my classes just before the service, service walk down the street. It's my prayer that he comes to church one day. He lives just up the road. He laughs at the idea that um, one day he might. We'll, we'll pray. Okay, let, let's pray before we look at the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, work in our hearts, shine your light in our hearts, so that we might see again the glory of you in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The odds were stacked against her. The challenge was a 177-kilometer swim from Cuba to Florida, she was 64. No one had ever done the swim before, and it involved at least 50 hours of swimming straight, no sleep. Diana Nyad had tried the swim at the age of 28, and she failed. She tried again when she was 60, twice, and failed both times. And on one of those occasions, she got stung by a box jellyfish, which is one of the most venomous creatures in the world, and nearly died. And then she tried again when she was 61, but she didn't make it. Her friends were begging her to stop trying. But she kept going. She didn't lose heart. Even in the successful swim in 2013, there were moments of crisis. There were uh, stretches of vomiting. There was abrasion in her mouth from the face mask. There was hypothermia. There was hallucinating. She said she saw the Taj Mahal uh, during her swim. Uh, There were strong currents. There were sightings of box jellyfish. With the boat right next to her, you can imagine how easy it would have been to tap that boat, to say, get me in that boat. I can't do it. But she didn't. The Apostle Paul is a little bit like Diana. Though for Paul, it wasn't a 53-hour swim, but it was a life given over to serving the Lord Jesus. Paul's was an endurance Marathon lasting about 32 years from his conversion. And it involved severe moments of crisis too. Beatings, imprisonments, sleepless nights, hunger, sorrow, pain. Yet, he didn't give up. Why? Why didn't Paul give up? That's what this passage is about. Uh, that's before us this evening. And as we find out the answer to why Paul didn't give up amongst his trials, amongst his sufferings, it might help us as well not give up. So this evening we're going to focus on what not giving up looks like. We're going to focus on two reasons then for not giving up. So what not, living, uh, what not giving up looks like and then two reasons why Paul didn't give up. So first, verses 1 and 2, what it looks like not to lose heart. Now, the first word we hit upon in the passage is the word therefore, which means that this passage is directly related to the passage beforehand. Therefore is drawing an inference from what's just been said. So we need to think about last week. What was last week's passage about? You might remember the radio, the, what is it, the something, something 1000 and the iPhone There was talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant is so much better than the Old Covenant. That's what the passage is all about just prior to this passage. The Old Covenant, which was the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses, they were pretty impressive. They were written by the hand of God. 
and they were a reliable guide for the people of Israel and their life together. But even though these words themselves were good, that was actually the problem. They were only words. They were only words etched on stone. They had no power to change the human heart. All the letters on stone could do was reveal to the Israelites that they couldn't keep them. The letters on stone, the old covenant, condemned the people of Israel. But the new covenant is different. The new covenant comes with power. Paul calls the new covenant in chapter 3 the ministry of the Spirit. Whereas the letters and words on the stone proved powerless, the Spirit was powerful. Based on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the new covenant declares us, first of all, it declares us righteous, not condemning us. It declares us righteous and then it gives us the power to transform. From the last verse of the previous passage, it says, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, the Lord Jesus' glory, and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So all that is caught up in the word, therefore. So, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this new covenant ministry, we do not lose heart. Paul goes on to describe what not losing heart looks like. Verse 2. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience by the sight of God. So this is what not losing heart looks like. Setting forth the truth plainly. Let me explain. When you're sick at home and you're watching midday TV and the infomercials come on, you should be suspicious of every single product you see. But especially when, and this is pretty much every time, when the presenters offer, along with the product, a whole range of um, extra deals. So you've heard it said before, but wait, there's more. Along with the magic vacuum cleaner, We'll add 12 steak knives. But wait, there's more. Call within the next 60 minutes and we'll double the offer. 24 steak knives. That's what they say. When the product isn't very good, they compensate. Think of the stereotypical used car salesman. They're trying to sell a lemon. So they they try to sell it with hyped up talk. But the opposite is also true. If you are selling a well-maintained Jaguar E-Type, You wouldn't drown the potential buyer with extra deals and discounts. You just let the potential buyer inspect it, admire it, inquire it. It's the real deal. If Paul was losing heart, he'd begin to add to the gospel. He'd begin to maybe dilute certain sections of the gospel so people would bite. He'd distort the word of God. He might think, if I turn down the whole idea of human sinfulness, people might like that a bit better. If I, if I turn up the whole idea of maybe material blessing now, people would love that. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't lose heart because he knows the gospel is the real deal. He knows that the simple truth in the gospel is where the power lies. And so he doesn't distort it. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't dilute it. By setting forth the truth plainly, We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And we're the same. 
here at St. Mark's. We're committed to setting forth the truth plainly. That's why every week we go through the passage with great care. That's why we have a, a vision which we just went over before, which is, or which will likely be, sharing the gospel with all fresh water, helping people to encounter, believe, and grow in Jesus. We want everyone in Freshwater to have an opportunity to hear and examine this gospel. That's why we regularly run uh, gospel courses like Terry's. That's going to be run not this Monday, but next Monday. We don't want to hide features of the gospel. We don't want to exaggerate parts at the expense of other parts like a used car salesman might. We believe that the truth of the gospel is the real deal, a little bit like the Jaguar. But let's move on to verses 3 and 4. And here, Paul gives us the first reason why he doesn't lose heart. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. As we heard last week, Paul realises many just don't see that the gospel is good news. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says, To some, Paul and his message was the smell of death, and to others, the fragrance of life. To use the veil metaphor, it's as if there's something in front of people's faces stopping them seeing that Jesus, his his life, death, and resurrection is good news. Paul goes on, verse 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here, we're getting a glimpse into the spiritual dynamics at play in our world. When it comes to our spiritual lives, Paul's saying that we're not living in a world where everyone's a free agent, where we can coolly examine the evidence with neutral objectivity. He's saying that there's more going on than we see. The God of this age, which Paul speaks of, is the evil one, is the Satan. He's called the God of this age because it's this age that's characterized by his influence. We just have to watch the news to see this. It's because of his influence that our world, our society, our lives, our own hearts are broken and we naturally rebel against our good and generous creator. And so the Satan, the evil one's primary work, his main aim is to blind the minds of unbelievers. Satan knows that power resides in the gospel. As Paul said earlier in chapter 3, verse 17, God's spirit works through the gospel to bring freedom. The gospel frees people from the evil one's blindness. When people are free to see the glory of God in Jesus... Lives are transformed. And that's exactly what Satan doesn't want. I'm guessing that no, none of you have heard of this guy before. Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a Hungarian doctor working at the uh, Vienna General Hospital in the 1840s. Now, the hospital that he was working at was known for its particularly high maternal mortality rates. Ignaz, I'll call him Iggy from here, was determined to find out why the rate was so high at his hospital. Iggy noticed that the hospital's medical students went straight from autopsying cadavers, that's dead bodies, to birthing babies. Although no one knew anything about germs or bacteria at the time, Iggy assumed it was this lack of cleanliness that was causing the high rate 
of mortality among the mothers. And when he had the midwives wash their hands in a chlorine-lime solution, the mortality rate was reduced by four-fifths. And so because of the, the discovery, Iggy became a pioneer for hand-washing. You'd think fellow doctors would celebrate the discovery, but instead they were offended that Iggy saw them as dirty. They were offended to think that it was their uncleanliness that was causing the disease. And so his discovery was completely rejected at the time. As long as the doctors were blinded by their own pride and egos, many mothers would needlessly die. In these verses, the apostle is saying that whilst unbelievers remain blinded to the glory of Christ, they will perish. But how does knowing the spiritual dynamics at play in our world keep Paul from losing heart? How does it keep us from losing heart? I can think of at least two reasons why this insight into the spiritual dynamics keeps Paul from losing heart. So first, when people reject the message about Jesus, it doesn't mean that the problem is with the message. Now, if you were trying to sell a product and no one was interested in your product, you'd probably be wise to uh, try to change products or change something about the product you're trying to sell. But because we know the spiritual dynamics at play in our world, it's not the message that needs to change. It's people's hearts. Now, this doesn't mean we don't try our best to make sure we communicate the gospel clearly with patience and and grace and in a way that makes sense to people. But Paul knows that ultimately, if the message is rejected, it's not because the message is faulty. And so Paul doesn't lose heart. He continues to speak the gospel clearly, even though it's rejected by some. And we should too. And second, um, if it's true that unbelievers are spiritually blind and that there's only one way for their spiritual sight to be restored through the gospel message, then that gives Paul ample reason not to lose heart. He has a job to do to spread the gospel and to pray that through it, God might open blind eyes. Like Paul, we have a job to do as a church and individually. We have a message that God mercifully works through to open blind eyes. Which brings us to verses 5 and 6 and another reason why Paul doesn't lose heart. Verse 5, For uh, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul knows that the power for transformation, of course, doesn't come from himself, even though he's an apostle. He preaches Christ because it's by the gospel, the, the news that Jesus Christ is Lord, that people are changed. And when you see, when you have the eyes to see that Jesus Christ is Lord, your life is transformed too. When you begin to realize God's love for you, that he loved you before you could love him back. You increase in love by the power of the Spirit. You put other people's interests first because God has served you in Christ. You grow in trust of God because you grow in your um, trust that he's good and that he's trustworthy, that he's got, got your best interests at heart. And you grow in hope as you look ahead to when... Jesus returns and makes all things new. He heals this groaning world. 
When you see Jesus as Lord, your life is transformed. You grow in love, in faith, in hope. Before I compared the gospel to this Jaguar E-type. But of course, there's no comparison. Like the law of Moses in chapter 3, a Jaguar has absolutely zero power to change a heart. With the Jaguar, you have to maintain it. But with Jesus, he maintains you. The Jaguar has no power to get inside you, to heal blind eyes. It has no power to impart life eternal, to change you from being selfish to a servant-hearted person, from despair to hope. A Jaguar can't do that. It might give you a bit of um, nice feelings for a while. But Jesus has the power to do all those things. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul doesn't lose heart because he knows it's God who's at work through the gospel. And he knows that God has the power to change a life. Just as in the beginning, God had the power to speak all things into existence, to speak light into darkness, he also has the power to heal blind eyes. Of course he does. He spoke all things into existence. And so Paul doesn't lose heart. He knows God has the power to transform a life. Now we all know the power of the sun. Um, Without the sun, the earth would be a ball of ice-coated rock. The sun warms our seas, it generates our weather patterns and gives energy to the green plants which give us oxygen and, and food. The sun gives life, it restores life, it renews life. In the same way, the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ gives us life. Okay, That's quite a dense phrase. Let me say that again. The light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ gives us life. Let me explain that phrase a little bit. I think it's key to understand that phrase. It's key to know what glory is all about, what the word glory means. In the Bible, uh, the word glory is the outward manifestation of God's inner power and nature. In other words, it's the going public of God's inner nature. That's what glory means. Now, in Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. This means that in the skies above, God's glory, his inner power, his beauty, his creativity, his love, is made public. His clouds, the blue expanse, the the sort of gold and hues, they're all shouting out to us. This is just a taste of my power and my beauty. But the Christian conviction is, that God's glory is seen brightest, is seen brightest in the person of Jesus. God's character is made public when Jesus welcomes the children. His love is made manifest when he cares for the outcast. We get a taste of his anger against sin when he has sharp words to say against the self-righteous Pharisees. And ultimately, his love and his faithfulness They're made public for us all to see. When Jesus makes his way to the cross to die a God-forsaken death for us, 
for you and me. The reason there's this tight connection between God's glory and Christ is because Jesus, of course, is no mere human being. Did you notice in verse 4, at the end of verse 4 and the end of verse 6, Paul interchanges God and Christ. So verse 4, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and then at the end of verse 6, it's God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Christ and God are interchangeable for Paul because Jesus Christ is God. And this is why at Lights, at our youth group, our theme for the term is seven things we love about Jesus. Each week we look at something of Jesus, his character, his actions, and we say to each other, it's like we're saying to each other, hey, look at the glory of God. Look at how humble he is. Look at how servant-hearted he is. Look at how he hangs out with the most immoral. As we grow in our love with these aspects of Jesus' character, we're actually growing in our love for God. Because God's glory is seen in Jesus because Jesus is God. And so let me read verse 6 again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. When the eyes of our hearts see God's glory in Jesus, when we think Jesus is pretty special, so special that he's worthy of my life, you know that God's light has been shone in your heart. Shone. It's like the morning sun has come above the horizon in your life. And of course, with the sun comes life. And so in your life, when you see the glory of God in Christ, your life begins to be transformed. Because that's what light does. It renews us. It brings life. From chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we've seen this morning, or this evening, excuse me, always happens. Paul doesn't lose heart. We've seen that not losing heart looks like setting forth the truth, setting forth the truth plainly. He knows that the gospel is the real deal, and so he doesn't add spin to the gospel like a used car salesman. There's no need. And we've seen two reasons why Paul doesn't lose heart. He doesn't lose heart because he understands the spiritual dynamics at play in our world. Paul knows that if people aren't responding, it's not the message that needs to change, but the blindness of people's heart. And he doesn't lose heart because he knows ultimately it's God's power at play through the gospel. And of course, God has the power to open blind eyes. Now, with all that in mind, I'd like to finish with three common but unhealthy, I think, assumptions when it comes to us thinking about sharing the gospel. I think we too often assume that people don't want to hear the message. As someone in my growth group said during the week, we too often assume that people will receive the gospel as the smell of death. But Paul clearly states in chapter 2 that to some, the gospel will be the fragrance of life. 
people, some people will love the gospel. We don't want to hold that back from them. And so we should go into our telling people about Jesus with expectation that they might be amongst those who will receive it as the fragrance of life. Two, I think we're too easily deceived into thinking that you need to be a pro to share the gospel. You really don't. And that's part of the the message of this passage. God works through the plain setting forth of the truth. When an opportunity arises, all that needs to be said is something like, hey, I'm a Christian. I'd love to tell you about what I believe sometime. Or um, having coffee or something and there's a silent moment and you say, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. He's changed my life. Or you could say, this might sound a bit weird, but do you want to know more about Jesus? It's really easy. And then you could offer to read the Bible, with, read the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels with them. I was at a conference a week ago and, and, um, and there was this evangelist who came. And the funny thing was, is that he was not impressive. He told us stories of how he awkwardly brought up Jesus in conversation. He'd say stuff like randomly, hey, do you want to know more about Jesus? It sounded awkward. But he told us stories of people receiving that really well and actually taking up the offer. I think we're often too easily deceived into thinking you need to be pro, but you really don't. Don't be scared of the questions they might ask. Treat it as a discovery, a journey of discovery for both of you, as a conversation, an ongoing conversation. And three, finally, uh, we forget who is the one at work when we share the gospel. It's not us. We can't change hearts. Of course we can't. God can. And so we should pray earnestly about our non-Christian friends, about our non-Christian families. We should pray regularly. We should pray bold prayers. And when we do, we should go in expectantly. God answers our prayers. He's powerful. Pray. In, in, uh, uh, just before you, you might have an opportunity, pray, Father, give me words and open their, uh, the, the eyes of their heart. Pray a short prayer and go in with the expectation that God will answer your prayer. So, Diana Naya, do you remember her? She was that 64-year-old who swam the 177 kilometers. When she was asked why she didn't give up, what was her motivation, she said, because I'd like to prove to the other 60-year-olds that it's never too late to start your dreams. That's a fine motivation. Paul's motivation, getting him through decades of toil and rejection, starvation, imprisonment, was to see lives transformed by God into Christ-likeness. For Paul and for us, we know God does his work of transformation through the good news of Jesus. And so we, like Paul, should endeavor to state the good news, the truth, plainly, and let God shine his light. Now, we're going to end with a video, a very short video. It's of an economist, quite a famous economist, named Ian Harper. And I want you to notice in this video um, that it's the setting forth of truth plainly that leads to his blind eyes being opened. And as he says at the end, it's an act of, uh, towards the beginning, it's an act of God. Let's watch. C.S. Lewis says he gets into a sidecar at Oxford, not a Christian. He gets out of a sidecar among a Christian. I'm a bit the same. Uh, th- there was a 
there was a change, a strange warming of my heart, I think is the way John or Charles Wesley describes the same type of thing. It, it's God's grace and conversion, as Paul describes, it's an act of God. In my case, um, yeah, I, this was uh, probably maybe three months after this process had started, and we were going to church uh, on Christmas Day, as it turned out. And uh, there I was, and I'd been to all of this discussion, and I'd been thinking about these things. Uh, and uh, John was preaching, he preached about Jesus as prophet, priest and king, and the three gifts, and all of that. Uh, and then there was a call to communion. This was an Anglican church, which uh, I insisted on because I went to Anglican school. And uh, there was a call to communion. And as people went up, I'd never taken communion prior to that time. In fact, I didn't take it at school either. I just didn't think it was right, since I didn't believe or understand what was going on. But now I've, I've been through this, and it was a call to communion. I didn't go up for a while. And then I looked, and I saw people gathering in front of the church, and I saw John there ministering, and I thought, hmm, what do you know? It's actually true. So I got up and I went forward and uh, I kneeled at the rail and John came along, of course, and he saw me there. He offered me the bread, offered me the wine, and I went back to my seat. And immediately after the service, he came down and he said, you took communion today. And I said, that's right, I did. He said, why? And I said, because it's true. Wow. I'd like to close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shone your light in our hearts so that we see your glory in the face of Jesus. We pray earnestly for those we know, our friends, our family, who don't see the good news, who just don't have the eyes to see. We pray that you open their eyes. We pray that you give us opportunities to share our love for Jesus with them. And when those opportunities come, give us words to say and be merciful to them. Might your grace and love transform them as it has transformed us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.